You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Jeff P., and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. For today's show, you'll hear about a new scientific study of the familiar cute furry little animals that you see right now scurrying through piles of leaves with acorns in their mouths. Yes, we're talking about squirrels. It turns out that the ubiquitous eastern gray squirrel has one of two possible coat colors, gray or black. Over the past century, the geographic range of squirrels with either coat color has been changing. To learn more, Locally sourced science contributor Esther Rakusen speaks with Professor Brad Cosentino from Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. He and fellow scientists just received a grant from the National Science Foundation to study the effects of urbanization on the evolution of eastern gray squirrels. And in today's interview, you'll be able to hear how you, a citizen scientist, can participate in the study. Later in today's show, you'll hear a feature about who produces locally sourced science and why we do it. That's right, we're talking about science communicators. Candace Limper interviews Jason Chang, a graduate student at Cornell University. He has helped set up a program to teach scientists how to communicate their work to non-scientists. Now, here's our first interview. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. It's getting colder and all kinds of animals that we see in our local neighborhoods are getting ready to hunker down for the winter. One of the most common critters in our backyards is the eastern gray squirrel. Despite its common name, it turns out that the squirrels we see all around us come in two colors or morphs, gray or melanic, also known as black. Up to about 150 years ago, the most common color morph seen in forests was black. Today, mostly gray squirrels are seen in forests, but the number of black squirrels in cities is increasing. I recently spoke with a biologist who is studying how the eastern gray squirrel may be evolving due to urbanization and changes in forests. Dr. Brad Cosentino is Associate Professor of Biology at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. He is the lead researcher for a $1.5 million grant from the National Science Foundation on a study of how the habitat of the eastern gray squirrel may play a role in the evolution of coat color. Researchers Adal Giza Kakone from Yale University and James Gibbs from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry are the collaborating researchers on the grant. I started out by asking what scientists have observed about the coat colors of squirrels living in forests versus ones living in cities. And if you look at the range of eastern gray squirrels, like in their native range, uh, melanism is most common in, in the northern part of its range, so where it's colder. As you get up into like Ontario and moving farther north, if you go back and look at historical records for like upstate New York and Pennsylvania, 
you can actually find that when European settlers um, were moving into these regions, uh, they noticed that most of the squirrels uh, at that time were of the melanic variety. And after kind of that period of settlement, moving into the late 1800s, early 1900s, most of those melanic squirrels were lost from rural forests. And so now you have the, the gray morph that's, that's most common. Costantino then discussed one of his research group's hypotheses of why the number of black squirrels in forests has decreased over time. And one hypothesis we have is that our forests in the Northeast have undergone drastic change in their structure. So of course, as Europeans were moving through, uh, moving West uh, and, and settling areas, um, they cut down a lot of forests uh, to grow farms. But over time, um, agricultural markets in the Midwest kind of opened up. There's more fertile soils in the Midwest. And so farming kind of moved out to the Midwest and our forests in the Northeast started to regrow. And they've been regenerating for about 200 years now. Out in rural woodlands, predation is probably the, the dominant driver of mortality in squirrels. And so we hypothesize that in older growth forests that were darker, more shaded, it's possible that the melanic form actually was a little bit more cryptic than the gray form uh, to predators. And, and we've actually shown that in a younger forest, it takes people longer to detect a gray squirrel than a melanic squirrel. And so now maybe the gray morph that has that advantage in terms of being a little bit more cryptic in our younger forest. So kind of that's what we think is, is one hypothesis more in the, in the rural areas outside of cities. I asked Cosentino, what are the predators of the eastern gray squirrel? Yes, so there's a lot of predators, some of them mammalian, so fox, um, coyote, some of them uh, avian, so, you know, red-tailed hawks and other types of hawks for sure. Um, even some snakes will eat squirrels. So there's a, a wide variety of predators. And this is kind of one thing we want to do with the, with the, with the new um, uh, grants and the opportunity to kind of dig in a little bit more. We can actually now objectively measure kind of how well these different color morphs match different environmental conditions, old growth versus young forests. And we can do that by actually modeling the vision of different types of predators, say mammalian versus a bird species. And so that's kind of one of the next steps here. Costantino and his research group will be studying whether the observed change in color morphs is due to natural selection, chance, or a combination of both. Here he explains. With the gray squirrels, we actually know that there's a single gene, the melanocortin receptor gene, um, where there's a, a, a mutation that's happened that, that upregulates up, up the production of, of melanin. And, and so we know that those melanic individuals are genetically different than the gray individuals. So when we talk about variation and how common one morph is relative to another, we're talking about differences in, in the sort of genetic background of those populations. And so we start to get into this world of thinking about evolutionary change. And there's different types of um, evolutionary processes that can cause, say, one type of a gene to be more common in urban areas and another type of a gene more common in, in rural areas. One of them is natural selection. Right? So what I just described um, about, you know, perhaps the gray morph having an advantage uh, and being a little bit more concealed in, in younger forests than the black morph and getting eaten by predators less, um, that would be an example of natural selection, favoring the gray morph in young forests. In cities, there may also be natural selection. Cities are kind of thought to be these 
you know, places of dramatic environmental change, right? We've replaced all the natural habitat with, not all, but most of the natural habitat with um, impervious surface, right? For our roads and our buildings. Um, and we've, those cities are now warmer than surrounding rural areas. And there's a lot of other environmental changes. And that's sort of the, the material that we think about when we think about evolution, right? There's gotta be some environmental change that natural selection maybe could fa favors some individuals that happen to do well in a certain set of environmental circumstances. You know, people introduce squirrels to cities really to kind of beautify that landscape, to enliven the park landscape, make it feel more natural. And people started feeding the squirrels and populations kind of took off. And, and, and black squirrels have actually been introduced into cities as well. I mean, the most famous example perhaps is Teddy Roosevelt introduced um, uh, I think over a dozen black squirrels to uh, Washington, D.C. from Ontario. And so that's kind of where we think about it as maybe a little bit of a chance event, right? Some cities may have a high proportion of melanic squirrels because they've been introduced by people, not because they've been actually favored by natural selection. And we need to try to tease those two, two hypotheses apart. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusen. And I'm speaking with Dr. Brad Cosentino. In the NSF grant, Dr. Cosentino and his co-investigators will take different approaches to determining the mechanisms of why the distribution of the gray and melanic squirrels has changed over time. Here, he talks about how he and his fellow researchers will visit different cities in the Northeast to collect data on the distribution of each color morph. Um, this is a, a project at a really big scale. So, you know, our best data on kind of how melanism declines from cities out into rural forests is from Syracuse. So we want to see if there are parallel changes in melanism among a set of cities. So we need replication of cities, right? So we're going to visit up to 10 cities um, in, in Eastern North America. So in the Northeast U.S., and we hope to get into Canada, uh, into Ontario as well where we'll actually do standardized surveys um, starting in the city center and moving out into the rural woodlands and counting squirrels and, and, and estimating the proportion of those squirrels that are melanic at each place. And so we can kind of see if that cline, what we call a cline is basically how the proportion of, of melanic squirrels changes from the city center into rural forest. We want to see if we see the same cline or the same pattern among those sets of cities. His colleagues at Yale will be sequencing parts of the genomes of gray and black squirrels and will compare them to see what changes might be occurring at the gene level. We are also going to use population genomic tools. So we're going to really dig into the genetics on this. So um, my collaborator at Yale, uh, we're going to collect a lot of tissue samples from urban and rural populations of squirrels and actually sequence uh, parts of the genome, including the gene that underlies melanism. And by looking at the patterns of how different the varieties of genes are at the MC1R gene, the one that codes for melanism, compared to other genes in the, in the, in the genome, we can actually get a sense for whether, whether there's natural selection acting on that MC1R locus, the one that codes for melanism. So that's going to be a big component. Another line of investigation will be to ask what might be causing the decrease in the number of black squirrels in forests. Is it the case that um, predators are actually eating more 
uh, melanic squirrels in, in young rural forests than gray squirrels. So we have a uh, experiment that we were planning where we're gonna actually create clay models of squirrels. So basically you can use a, a clay that doesn't harden completely, form it into a squirrel-like shape, paint some gray and paint some black, and put them out in the same locations in young forests and old forests. And we can actually uh, see how often those models are attacked by predators because a predator, if it tries to bite one of these um, uh, clay models, it leaves an impression of its tooth or its beak, right? So we can measure the attack rate and test whether the attack rate is, um, is greater on the, on the melanic morph in young forests than on the uh, gray morph. The researchers also will be studying the differences in how humans see gray or black squirrels on the road. We're going to try to develop further our, our studies of how fast people can detect these morphs in different environments, and even including on roads. Um, so we want to get the community involved in this. Go to squirrelmapper.org and fire up our, our, our video game and, and, and measure how long it takes you to, to find melanic versus gray morphs on, on roads and cities. And we want to expand on that and kind of, uh, you know, have that in, include some additional environmental circumstances in that game. So that's going to be a component of the project as well. Finally, Cosentino and colleagues will be doing outreach to encourage teachers and their students to use their research findings to learn about evolution. And, and I'd just like to add, too, there's a big component of outreach here. So um, we're going to be working with New York Master Teachers um, to develop pedagogy, to develop um, inquiry-based sort of activities that will work from K through 12. Uh, that kind of builds a program of what we call schoolyard evolution. So we think this is a really great case study um, to get kids excited about evolution, right? Everybody knows squirrels. Every, you know, if you're from a city, you see squirrels all the time. And, um, and even on the schoolyards. And so there's a lot we can do with that to get kids excited about evolution and learning about evolution through um, this case study on, on squirrel coat color. If you would like to learn more about the study and take part in the citizen science component, you can visit squirrelmapper.org. That's one word, squirrelmapper.org. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Please let us know about your science news. Send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio, or contact us by sending an email at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. You can check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Here's Candice Limber's interview of Cornell graduate student Jason Chang. Hi everyone, my name is Candice Limper with Locally Sourced Science. For this segment, I want to highlight the importance of science communication. But first, I want to tell you a little about how the public views the scientist. Scientists are known for working in a lab wearing a white lab coat. But what often people don't necessarily talk about is what they're doing in the lab. These scientists often work hours on end studying one protein or mechanism and can do this for their entire career. 
And while working so intensely, scientists learn a particular language to describe how things work. This language is full of technical jargon, and much of which non-scientists would not understand. Given the lack of trust in science today, it is imperative that scientists learn to communicate their work so that others will understand the importance and significance it has on their lives and to the society at large. In this interview, I will be talking with a graduate student at Cornell University who is passionate about helping other scientists learn how to share their work with non-scientists. He and others have recently provided access to a science writing program called ComSciCon SciRai 2020, which is a series of science communication workshops that provides STEM graduate students and postdocs with hands-on training to improve accessibility of science for the general public. So hi, my name is Jason. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate in biomedical engineering at Cornell. So what motivated you to try to get in or wanting to get involved? Like, what is the significance of that to you personally? I got involved in ComSec on Cornell to start out because I just, when I started graduate school, you know, I think everyone similar to maybe your first year of undergraduate has that moment where you just want to try out everything and get involved and see what sticks and what doesn't stick. So science communication was something that I had been personally interested in exploring to learn more about. So it was more like, more so actually for my reasons, like I wanted to learn more about it from the organizational perspective, because I realized that I had a lot of event planning and conference planning stuff from undergrad that I, has, I was comfortable with. So I knew that if I were to take that back end approach and help organize one, I'd also end the process learn so much through just inviting speakers, attending the sessions myself and moderating that, um, you know, it was eye opening because prior to that, all I had was science policy experience. And so when I came to graduate school at Cornell, my perception of science communication was really, you know, I think everyone thinks of Bill Nye probably as one of the more prominent science communicators when you were at a younger age. But I also kind of associated science communication primarily with science writing. So I thought, you know, I think all some of us also initially think that science communication in itself is like a separate career path and that it is separate from academia. While we recognize that, you know, as scientists, we do communicate our science. So for me, really, I think that ComSciCon Cornell was an eye-opening experience and that I realized that, okay, it's a very multifaceted and multi and very nuanced community and that there is no like one way to do science communication, which I thought was very refreshing. But for me personally, I still hadn't reached the point yet in my career where I thought, you know, is this what I want to do full time? Or am I going into academia by wanting to incorporate science communication? So SciBi was that stepping stone, I think, to realizing more of what I wanted out of that, if that makes sense. So ComSciCon is short for, I believe, Communicating Science. And so it's now an international series of science communication workshops. It originated in Boston. I believe that the founders were primarily affiliated with like MIT, Harvard, Boston institutions. And I forget what year it had started, but um, it had grown from the national or flagship workshop, which hosts about 40 to 50 attendees each year, um, all STEM graduate students and postdoctoral researchers. And they host them in person at this workshop to give them hands-on training in various science communication avenues, whether that's through the form of panelists or invited speakers and keynotes. And I think one of the hallmarks of ComSciCon is that attendees typically work on an original piece that's targeted towards a popular science outlet. So for example, I think oftentimes people think of Scientific American, something like that, writing an op-ed piece. That's the goal where 
attendees come in maybe not having concrete writing experience, but they leave the workshop having produced an original work and having that exposure. So SciRi is a unique one in that Science Writers is a annual conference held in collaboration with the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing, or CSW, as well as the National Association for Science Writers, or, or NSAW. So it's really unique in that SciRi is one of the more intimate ComSciCon or chapter workshops because we have less attendees. And it's unique in that we're actually integrated directly into an actual meeting, um, like an actual conference of science writers. It's a bit more chaotic and stressful, in my opinion, because you have the attendees come for the ComSciCon portion, and then we kind of just throw them to the deep end of the conference. Not literally, but it might feel that way sometimes starting out. And that is really so that they get the hands-on um, experience of what is it like to have a piece and to write on a deadline for an editor and such. I'm assuming last year was in person, but this year was over Zoom. How was the conference held or the workshops held? Yeah, so it's interesting. Last year definitely was in person. So as I mentioned, SciRi is held in collaboration with the Science Writers Conference, which is where we get that chapter workshop name. And that was at Penn State University in October of last year. And so we did have our Friday, which was the day that we had all the CompSecCon panel events and keynotes for our attendees, our 11 attendees that we selected. And then starting the day after was when science writers began. So we were fully immersed at Penn State in the hotel. They went to every single session, um, including the science speaker that they were assigned to report on. And so obviously with the pandemic this year, we had to change it up when we found out that Science Writers was no longer going to be held in person at CU Boulder. It was actually going to be all online. Um, we did have to switch to doing a fully Zoom format for the CompSciCon portion, but Science Writers had fortunately had a separate group on their end planning that. Um, so they had, I believe, done a mixture of Uva, Remo, um, they had like a dedicated online platform, which is very streamlined. So it was kind of a hybrid between Zoom and other virtual platforms. So um, for those listening and that also want to participate in the future, where can they find out more information for the next cohort or the next year? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I forget when exactly you always start soliciting new applications, but typically I think in the early spring. So again, SciRi is always October of each year. I think that the best way to stay connected is one, follow us on Twitter. So at C-O-M-S-C-I-C-O-N-S-C-I-W-R-I. So at CompSciConSciRi. Um, we usually post regular updates and once application materials are available, we'll be posting them there too. And you can also Google CompSciConSciRi. And if you go to the CompSciCon national website, you'll be able to find our previous event pages from both 2020 and 2019, as well as 2015. So you can actually see photos from the event. You can see our write-ups of all the attendee pieces that were published. And you can also see a general program book, schedule of events. So you can really see the full outline of what the conference entails. And then if you always have any questions, we're always available over email as well at, I think it's SciRi, S-C-I-W-R-I at compscicon.org. Hi, my name is Candice Limper, and you are listening to Locally Source Science, 
where I am interviewing Jason Chang about ComSciCon SciRai 2020, which is a program that he helped organize to teach scientists how to communicate their work to non-scientists. I think it's interesting in terms of applications that we get and review. I think that if there's anyone out there that really is questioning or at a pivotal point in their graduate studies or postdoc thinking about same questions I mentioned earlier of what do I want to do with life? Is it a full-time science communication career? Or if they don't know what that even entails, being a full-time science communicator, like what does that mean? Or science writer, this conference really is, I think, transformative in that almost all of our attendees report a major professional development outcome or career development outcome in which they explicitly state this conference has shaped how I would like to approach my craft in the future and has told me that maybe academia is where I am belonging to. However, I now know that there are things that I can do as a faculty member, such as interacting with public information officers at universities, so PIOs to get their work out, their stuff from, you know, contributing your voice and expertise, writing op-ed pieces, testifying, you know, contributing your expertise of legislation. And there's also the people that do say, I want to become a science writer. And then this is kind of a catalyst to help them get their foot in the door in terms of freelancing. And then hopefully with the intention of that either leading to more leads for full-time staff positions, or if they want to continue freelancing, I think that's also just a great community that I would definitely say is unique. And I think this color experience from Comstacon SciRite is unique in that you also get to benefit from the broader science writing community, which I think is really valuable. And I think that the people that have attended this conference, both as organizers as attendees, have really valued that network and it's really followed them through like over the past few years and hopefully in the future too. I'm sure that's going to have the effect, an effect on those who they're interacting with too and how they influence others, whether it's mentoring or just people reading their articles. Yeah, it's a chain effect. And that's, I think, really the premise of the ComSecon franchise series is that the goal is always to train all of these graduate students and postdocs, not because at the individual level, they definitely will have a lot of impact in what they do. But now that they have this same training and expertise going back into their communities, whether that's back to their home institution or into academia or policy or the science writing or even to like different countries or different cultures, I think the expertise they then gain has a broader impact on like a scientific enterprise, which is really important at the moment. I don't know if that's an understatement, but yeah, that's, it's really important right now for people to understand and trust in science. Yeah, I mean, especially with what's happening now, I think that people often will get mad at people or outlets for not fact-checking quickly enough. And if you listen to a professional science journalist walk you through step-by-step how they fact-check, especially like during these presidential debates, it's very stressful. I don't envy their jobs. I don't think I personally could do it. It just seems like a lot of stress and there's a lot of things happening at once. It's very dynamic. And I hope that people out there in academia that maybe are listening also appreciate how crucial science writing is and that it's not just a, you know, you can just learn it. It's just a, you can just do it. It's very much a, it's a very strong skill set. And I think that's why so many people dedicate their professional life just in this area of work and that we have to really shape academia to realize how important this is and to value it 
and to engage in it better because I think currently we're not really at the level that we need to engage with the science journalism community. Well, I hope the future workshops that you do will help more people to get involved in science writing and science communication. And if people don't want to do SciWrite, remember there are probably like dozens of franchise workshops now all across the U.S. and Canada because we're international. Canada has a workshop now, I think, too. My name is Candice Limper with Locally Source Science, and you just heard my interview with Jason Chang about the ComSciCon SciRi 2020 program that he and others have started to help scientists learn to communicate their work to non-scientists through writing. I'm Jeff P., and you've been listening to Locally Source Science. Esther Rakusen produced today's show and the interview with Dr. Brad Cosentino from Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Candace Limper produced the interview with graduate student Jason Chang about science communication workshops for STEM graduate students and postdocs. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio. Tune in for our next show on Tuesday, November 10th. Science out.